Hey everybody, you are listening to The Poison Lab, a show about poisoning for people who manage poisoning. I'm your host, clinical toxicologist and emergency medicine pharmacist, Ryan. And today is a really fun episode with a special guest, Dr. Annie Ahrens, who is just a brilliant toxicologist and one of the funniest humans I've ever met. This episode is a bit of a mishmash of our two normal episode types, the ones where we give you a case and have you guess and then go on a deep dive of the toxin and our toxicologist versus the internet episodes. So in this episode, we're going to run through a mystery case and read out our listener guesses. And then we'll jump into our standard toxicologist versus the internet, do a few interesting cases and try to stump each other and hit some questions about drugs from the internet. I'm going to play the mystery case for you right now. So you can start forming your own differential before we get to our listener guesses. Toxo, roll the clip. A 22-year-old female was admitted to the hospital for myalgias and vomiting. She had been feeling fatigued for the past few weeks. On admission, she had persistent emesis and her breathing became rapid and shallow. Her initial vital signs demonstrated a pulse rate of 150, a respiratory rate of 40. Her blood pressure was 135 over 44 millimeters of mercury, and her temperature was 103 degrees Fahrenheit. Her initial pH was 7.45, and blood gases demonstrated low carbon dioxide from her rapid breathing, a respiratory alkalosis. She also had an elevated white blood cell count in presence of hepatic dysfunction with elevated liver enzymes and total bilirubin. She had no significant past medical history although had recently started her menstrual cycle and did have a tampon in place. She was started on antibiotics for presumed toxic shock syndrome. She received fluids, but quickly developed hypotension requiring vasopressors. She then decompensated into a cardiac arrhythmia, which eventually became asystole, and they were unable to achieve return of spontaneous circulation. On autopsy, it was noted that there was no acute inflammation of the endometrium or cervix that's normally present in toxic shock syndrome but a yellowish serous fluid was noted to be present in the pleural and peritoneal cavities. Could there have been a toxic cause to this patient's unfortunate demise? It seems pretty likely since you're listening to The Poison Lab. That's our case. Toxo, for our high-yield friends who don't want to listen to other listeners' answers, could you give us a couple timestamps they can skip ahead to? The toxin is revealed at minute 35. And for the rest of you who want to dive into cases, Ryan and Dr. Aaron start stump the toxicologist at one hour and two minutes. Feel free to skip ahead. But let's be honest, you're listening to a toxicology podcast. How much of a rush could you really be in? For everyone else, sit back and enjoy some great conversation with a hilarious and brilliant toxicologist, Dr. Annie Ahrens. We're going to be covering all sorts of topics like how to win the most absurd medical fistfight you've ever seen, what are the hottest new drugs in your gas station, and why we even respond to drugs in the first place. It's a lot of fun. Before we start, our standard disclaimers. We're going to be answering questions on the internet from people who may be trying to use drugs for the wrong reasons. Anyone using illicit drugs is exposing themselves to risks of potential contaminants, wide dose fluctuations, and toxicities of the drug itself. While this gives us a medium to explore toxicologic concepts, we are not advocating for anyone to use illicit drugs. If you are struggling with substance use, call 1-800-662-4357 to access the SAMHSA free helpline and get the care you deserve. Second, we're going to be talking about real fatalities. And while this allows us to discuss a lot of great learning points, some of these were intentional fatalities. If you or a loved one are struggling with thoughts of suicide, 
Someone's there to listen. Pick up your phone and dial 988 to reach the National U.S. Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Please call. Finally, even though we're going to be discussing medical management, treatment, and diagnosis, this podcast is intended for educational purposes only, and we are not providing medical advice. If you think you're being poisoned or you have a general health care question, call your primary care provider or reach out to your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222. Now, without further ado, let's get on with the show. Everybody, you are listening to The Poison Lab, a show about poisoning for people who treat poisoning. Today, we have a very special episode. I am thrilled to welcome on Dr. Annie Ahrens. Would you mind introducing yourself to the audience? I don't. I'm Annie Ahrens. It's nice to meet everybody over the internet. I'm an emergency medicine physician and medical toxicologist at Ashner Medical Center in New Orleans. We're in the thick of carnival season right now, so hopefully... Everybody's got their king cake. They've kept their knife in the box. Uh, I just a little bit about me. So I grew up in Minnesota in Chanhassen, which is uh, where Paisley Park is, which is like the coolest part about Chanhassen and Chanhassen. And then I did my medical training at the University of Minnesota, followed by my emergency medicine training in Denver, medical toxicology in San Francisco, moved back to Minnesota, came down south. And that's how I get the weirdest accent with the y'all thrown in there. I love it. I love it. That's are how you, we got to here. Are you Minnesota nice? I am very nice and not very friendly. <laughs> like so yes. So yes. Uh, first off, did I already butcher? Is it Aaron's? Did it's Aaron's it? like a pirate Aaron's. Like, like it's pirate. it looks like Aaron's, but apparently it's Austrian, so it's a hard R. We're from Arnsville. It's R like a pirate and Annie like the little orphan. I like that. It's, it's a hard A, everybody. soft A. Okay, there we go. Hard A, soft A. Hard <laughs> A. Hard A, hard A. Oh, there's the Minnesota there. So, well, thank you so much for joining the show. Uh, for the listeners, Dr. Arns has also been involved in training some of our past guests. We had Dr. Justin Corcoran on, who went through fellowship under the mentorship of Dr. Arns and many others. She has written a number of works that I have personally cited in some of my own projects, such as a systematic review of the adverse effects of physostigmine, the 2023 American Heart Association focus update on the management of patients with cardiac arrest or life-threatening toxicity due to poisoning, uh, many, many fantastic studies, reviews, publications. I, I have to say the first time I came across anything that you have done, I was a young toxling at North American Congress of Clinical Toxicology. I don't remember when. I, I do remember a really fantastic CPC, I believe. Oh, yes. I was it, so pregnant. It, it, oh, well, see, I couldn't tell because you're behind the podium. Oh, stop. But I do believe the title of it was like Getting ripped for Jesus, and it was about Getting jacked a, for Jesus, jacked yep. for Jesus, clenbuterol. Very yeah. important, very important. You know what? You might be the perfect guest for this. I was in the shower the other day, which not that relevant, but that's where you have all the best thoughts, right? Because you kind of just let all these different mental modules that run your mind kind of go free, and and you go down those paths. And I had this idea that I think maybe you would appreciate, and I was yep. like, I should really try a radio intro like like 
a real with the exciting... wind up music. Can I pick a background? You can, probably can't afford that. No, no, no. Yeah. Are, do you ever listen to satellite radio? Yeah. Okay. So my wife has it. I don't have it in my car, but whenever we're in there, she's, there's this like guy, Spider Harrison. He sounds like he's got like the lowest voice I've ever heard in my life. It's like, welcome to 87.9 radio. And I've always wanted to do. Today's the, the day. The most Today's ridiculous. The day. All right. All right. Feel it. Feel it. Right, it's got to right. come from here. Wait from here. here. Get that diaphragm. Hey, everybody, you are listening to 106.9 Fahrenheit, the talks, bringing you the hottest, tackiest, craziest talks tidbits straight down your electron transport chain. With us today, we have one of the greatest talks of all time. She puts the FISO and physiology in the can in Narcan. Put your beta adrenal receptors together for Dr. Annie Aaron. Bam, bam, bam. Oh, tingles. Okay. That was a have- great introduction. You could have tried harder. You could have tried harder. Thank you. I I don't know if that one's going to air, but I really wanted to give it a try. If it doesn't, I'm going to find out where you live. Well, I'll definitely have it uh, sent to your house. Okay. Um, Well, for the listeners, we're going to jump into the show. So we'll be doing our normal segments. We're going to get through some of these awesome listener guesses. I know everyone is biting at the... Whatever. You're on the edge of your seat. You want to know what this toxin is. You cannot Uh, wait. Just cannot wait. We can't do it yet. So we got to go through the guesses. Ah. Some are fantastic. I'm going to pull them up here. And myself and Dr. Arons are going to go through them. Cool. You want me to read them verbatim? Because I'll do it. You want me to do it? I'll do it. You're allowed to um, use some creative integrity. Poetic uh, license. Creative integrity. But but largely... Yeah, I usually just read them off. But. Cool. Um, okay, here we go. You heard our case. We had a young female who was admitted febrile tachycardic. They suspected toxic shock syndrome due to a retained tampon. And then the patient aggressively decompensated and we couldn't get ROSC. There was a couple of things going on here. But on autopsy, they found a yellow serous fluid in the pleural space and a number of other areas. And that... It was a little tough to piece together what's going on here. It was a great case. You know, like the fact I the fact that they had even thought of toxic shock. I was super impressed. Like as an emergency medicine physician, I was like, man, it was a great thought because I would have just given her like vancomycin and admitted her and be like, I don't know, she's septic. That was very impressed. Well, that's like 80 percent of toxic shock anyways. So, well, right. Yeah. The original. Yeah. Yeah. The original misdiagnosis. That's right. Uh, Well, the first guesser is. Uh, I'm not entirely sure how to say this. BP's PR guy was the username that was set in. Blood pressure's PR guy, maybe. I like it. They, you know, they've been getting a bad rap recently. Gotta That's get true. It back, you know, get a rep, get that rep back. Yeah, everyone keeps trying to put it down. You know, leave blood pressure alone. Uh, but BP's PR guy writes in. He says, "Hospitalist MD here. Fatigue, nausea, vomiting, fever, leukocytosis, hyperventilation, bumped LFTs." and progression to hypotension and a lethal arrhythmia. Wow. Well, that's a great summary of the case right there, too. Uh, unfortunately, all are very nonspecific. Same with that clear fluid in the body cavities. Third spacing from shock and appropriate IV fluids would see that from any infection, toxin, or heme malignancy that makes one critically ill. The facts presented don't reveal anything about the cause other than it was bad enough to kill. Without more info... Anyone who gives you a hard answer based on the info provided is making stuff up. Mm. Well, Mm. not wrong, but I do Mm. think there was one very important clue in this case 
uh, that we will go over here eventually. Yeah. But I agree, pretty broad. Uh, Dr. Irons, would you mind taking number two from... That Doggo Goes Woof 1001? Absolutely. Love about that. Uh, Doggo Goes Woof says, sounds like the patient might be septic shock from an infection elsewhere, EBV or hepatitis, complete shot in the dark, but I focus on the hepatic effects of the fever. I thought the other symptoms were secondary to a viral end of sentence, a viral end of sentence, period. A, a premature use of a punctuation. Yes. We don't know what Doggo Goes Woof, what's happening in that, in that mind. It's interesting. My big question is like, do they, like they know it's a tox podcast, right? Like they know yeah. it's a tox podcast. Yeah. And they just went straight infection. And I was Although like, well, I will not. say if you were to someday to just put up a case in it, like just be COVID or the flu, that would be pretty rad. Like if it, you, it's just like the ultimate, you know, red herring and it just turns out to be COVID. Oh yeah. Like your last it's, it's episode. Gonna be myasthenia gravis. That's what yeah, exactly. It's just look tox mimic. Just COVID. So doggo goes woof. I don't I have no response to that. Okay. I like I like that they thought outside the box, way outside. Uh next up we have Natani Gold. I think that's a wrestling reference. I don't actually know. But they say salicylate toxicity was on her period and having bad cramps and took a bunch of aspirin or oil Ooh. of wintergreen or whatever. That's She's got good. a yeah, I, I think that's a, a solid guess. Here. That's a great thought. Context. She's got mixed respiratory alkalosis and a metabolic acidosis mm-hmm. with rapid mm-hmm. breathing. Not sure why third spacing fluids other than general shockiness. Okay. Not a bad guess. That's great. I like that, Nittany. Get it. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't wow. know who Neko 293 is. Neko 293. Is it wafers? Is it a death reference? I don't know where Neko comes from. Mm-hmm. I love a good Neko wafer. We're just going to go with it. So it says, I'm not a toxicologist in the slightest, but many of these symptoms seem to align with, I'm just going to say CCL4 or phosgene toxicity. Um, okay, I'll give you that. Carbon tetrachloride, by the way. I just said CCL4. Carbon tetrachloride is the other way to say that. That's how an adult would say that. But you have not invited adult to the pod. So in this case, respiratory alkalosis would be secondary to the metabol- metabolic acidosis caused by the CCL4. This would also explain the liver dysfunction that is consistent with the phase three presentation. I believe the myalgia may be a red herring here, although I don't honestly have much of an explanation for the serous fluid. But hey, like I said, not a toxicologist at all. Smiley face sweating emoji. Either way, I'm going to obsess over this until I know the actual answer. Edit, myalgia is not a red herring. If the CCL4 is implicated by muscle catabolism, it's also consistent with CCL4 toxicity. I'm a filthy liar that doesn't, that doesn't know how to follow his own diagnosis Forehead slap emoji. Carbon tet. They can be my friend any day. Interesting. None of those I mean, initially jumped to my mind, but I like that he found some evidence to support it. That's pretty that's good. That's interesting. Get it, wafers? Yeah. All right. This next one comes from Kirk Fetters, MD, Chief Resident, Department of Medicine, Harbor, UCLA. Oh, geez. Wonderful. What's up, Kirk? Thanks for writing in, Kirk. He says, this one really stumped me. This patient is a 22-year-old woman who presented with subacute myalgias, intractable vomiting, intractable, sorry, hyperthermia, tachypnea, and respiratory alkalosis, elevated liver enzymes, and hyperbilirubinemia, then rapidly dis- decompensated. On autopsy, she has yellow-colored ascites and pleural effusion rather than the expected signs of toxic shock syndrome, bump, bump, bump. Like the team caring for this patient, I would not have suspected a toxic cause of this patient's illness, so I'm excited to learn. Honestly, 
I think a lot of people would not eat initially either. So, no, really, no, no. This is yeah. not, unless you're like, you know, literally one of us, one of us, this would be not a diagnosis. I think that would jump out to pre- to anyone, really. Right. And uh, unless this you're one is tough. Even examining for- it through only the tox lens, there's certainly a lot of other causes that could do this. Yep. So I like that everyone is. Even a tox lens, to be honest. Yeah. This tough is- one. So he says, my uncertain diagnosis is 2,4-dinitrophenol overdose, a chemical used as an herbicide, pesticide, and wood preservative, and importantly, a black market weight loss medication. Like salicylates, it decouples oxidative phosphorylation, which leads to severe hyperthermia. Other clinical effects in overdose are tachypnea, nausea, vomiting, hepatotoxicity, rashes, a yellowing of the skin attributed to the agent itself, rather than the hyperbilirubinemia that was present in this patient. Hmm, interesting. And case reports of acute heart failure. Interesting. Although ascites and pleural effusions are often yellow in color, 2,4-DNP may accentuate the yellow color of body fluids. I would have thought that this is rare in the age of GLP-1 receptor agonists. Oh, boy. Uh, fair. Got- Got to get semaglutide in here. Not nearly as effective. That's right. But it appears there's been a number of overdose reported in the UK and the US in the last 20 years due to DNP for weight loss. Other toxic causes of hyperthermia seem unlikely. Salicylates rarely cause hepatotoxicity. There's no rigidity or dystonia to suggest antipsychotics or sympathomimetics or serotonergics. There are no seizures to suggest stimulants, and there's no dry red skin to suggest agents with anticholinergic properties. Toxic mushrooms may explain the hepatotoxicity and vomiting, but not the hyperthermia or subacute time course. I cannot wait to hear the answer. Wow. That was a beautiful differential, and I loved reading that. Thanks for writing in, Dr. Fetters. Thank Dr. Fetters. Okay. You want to take Patrick Rose here? Let's do it. Dr. Rose Kalk is running in from Upstate University Hospital in Syracuse. Um, Dr. Patrick Rose says, The presented case involves a 22-year-old female with a recent history of several weeks of fatigue presenting with fever, tachycardia, and tachypnea. Chronic salicylate poisoning would be a reasonable consideration, fact, but I would expect a mixed respiratory alkalosis and metabolic acidosis with this level of tachypnea and clinical instability. Methylxanthines, my favorite thing to drink, and next alcohol, anticholinergic, sympathomimetic, serotonin toxicity, and NMS would also be reasonable considerations. But I would expect that hyperthermia would be accompanied by some increased motor activity or rigidity. So we've now gone through everything that can make you hot. Love it. Abrin and ricin would be another reasonable consideration, but all these things take days to kill. True. For this reason, I think the most likely explanation is an uncoupler, such as cyanide, hydrogen sulfide, or sodium azide. These chemicals cause the reported symptoms, rapid decompensation, and death within hours, but do not usually have precedent symptoms over a period of several weeks. True. Metformin could have a similar presentation in the setting of an altered renal function, but there's no exposure history. Phenoxyacetic herbicide derivatives such as 2,4-D, common in commercial agriculture, may also cause respiratory alkalosis and GI symptoms. However... This also does not explain the prolonged time course of fatigue with this case. I, therefore, comma, think the most likely uncoupler is dinitrophenol. Dinitrophenol is used <laughs> as a weight loss stimulant and can cause mild symptoms like fatigue at lower doses. At higher doses, it can cause more se- severe symptoms and death within hours while causing yellowish body fluid discoloration. This is my... It is my opinion that this patient is taking dinitrophenol for weight loss and suffered tragic complications for acute 
after acutely increasing their dose. That was, I tell you what, that was a wild ride. I was like, I was fully invested in that ride. It took a turn. It took another turn, a 180. We were back at the beginning, right back to dinitrophenol. I was so excited. Are we going to go to Abrin? Get it. I know, right? You're bringing out the Abrin and the Ricin. Like you got both of them. They're basically the same. I, it just, it, that was a wild ride. I was excited to be on that journey. Absolutely. We all were, the audience included. Patrick Rose, pharmacist from upstate, who I believe has written in before. Thanks for writing in again today. Uh, this next one, I'm going to jump on. C-Spy from Canada. We are international friends. This is Kyle, the C-Spy from Canada. Hey, Ryan, I love the podcast. Thank you, Kyle. Tricky one, but not sure how she would have been exposed. But yellow phosphorus mm-hmm. seems like it fits with nausea, vomiting, liver. Does cause liver. Breathing difficulties, dysrhythmias, and hypotension. Looking forward to hearing the answer. I love it. I love that guess. White phosphorus is one of the most fascinating toxins I've ever spent a large amount of time reading about. Um, it's a something that you get on your skin and it can actually absorb and cause systemic electrolyte abnormalities that can cause fatal arrhythmias. And when you turn the lights off, it actually fluoresces. So people get these white phosphorus burns that actually make so them glow in the dark and die of arrhythmias. And it's pretty wild. So... Great guess, Kyle. I love it. Uh, I'm going <laughs> to, Dr. Ards, if you could jump on number eight there. Let's do it. This comes from Farouk Ahmad. It says, hi, I have two differentials for your case. Meigs syndrome, which is a, uh, if uh, it is a triad associated with ovarian cancers, I believe, with ascites and pleural effusion. That was buried in some <laughs> locked away chamber of my brain that comes from way back here like occipital lobe but it's there but hey megs 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 i believe it's pronounced megs syndrome i'm i apologize to dr megs i that is a left field megs syndrome i also w- would never have considered those because i did not remember what that was i assume you diagnose that three to four times a day in the emergency department all the time and yeah, Ray okay. syndrome, which I suppose the best description of Ray's is an autoimmune type of, when is it autoimmune? Hepatitis that we saw previously, especially in kids who were treated with aspirin. Yeah. Um, it's a very interesting case. Yeah, definitely another uh, odd one. I guess Rise is technically like a drug-related one. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but this is why you don't give children aspirin. That's right. Uh, like the ideas? We got a wide differential here, a lot of front runners. This one comes from listener Peter Tran, who may or may not be my own emergency medicine pharmacy resident who I forced to write into the show. So Ryan and Toxo, what an interesting case. Since toxic shock syndrome was ruled out, there might be a possibility of a toxicologic exposure. This feels like he used chat GPT to write this. The tachycardia, tachypnea, and hyperthermia led me to believe that this may be some sort of salicylate poisoning or some other form of ingestion that could lead to uncoupling of oxidative phosphorylate, phosphorylation, such as chlorphenoxy herbicides. Classic. However, the yellow serous fluid was a unique finding. This patient was very young. And I'm wondering if they were using weight loss supplements. I'm going to guess she was taking a third guess for dinitrophenol which was once used as a weight loss supplement. Although this was banned in the mid-1900s, it could be purchased over the internet and may often be used in bodybuilding. 
DNP is a yellow crystalline solid, and there are case reports of yellow serous fluid in the pleural cavity. Thank you, Peter Tran. Okay, I take it back. That was not ChatGPT. That was the great mind of Dr. Peter Tran for MD. Uh, great guest, Peter. I loved hearing that. Way to bring up the herbicides. Got to get rid of those pesky plants. Yeah. What do they ever do for us? I know. What do they ever do for me? Get out of here, plants. Let's see. The next one is from Dave. It Just says, Dave. hi, Ryan. Dave Carroll here, one of the Tox Fellows at Wayne State. What's up, Dave? Uh, longtime listener, huge fan. Dave. Nice. That's very kind. Dave, get it, brother. Given the tachycardia, wide pulse pressure, love that you picked up on that. Vomiting and respiratory alkalosis was initially considering a methylxanthine ingestion uh, like caffeine. Solicites are also always on my mind when it comes to a patient presenting with respiratory alkalosis and vomiting. Fair. Seems unlikely she's have gotten into one of the classic historical causes of respiratory alkalosis, such as doxapram. Nope, not doing that one. Nope, also not pronouncing that one. History has also not suggested a simple asphyxiant as she's been removed from the exposure seems more progressive. Fair. The hepatotoxicity, hyperthermia, vomiting, yellow serous fluid makes me think her presentation was due to uncoupling from dinitrophenol. Maybe because she was using it as performance enhancing xenobiotic slash dietary supplement. Looking very forward to an upcoming episode. Nice. Dave. Dave. Doxapram. Dave. What in the world is nicothinamide? Nick, nica, nicatin. Nicathamide? Ethamavin? I do believe. We're getting punked, right? No. <laughs> like, this is like when you do a, a trick call and they're like, you know, it's like Amanda hug and kiss or something. Uh, right, you, Dave? Dave? Definitely don't exist. Dave, anymore. call in. So I saw, so Dave is going to get bonus points because I saw this guy. So I was like, well, I'm going to Google that. Nicathamide? What the? It, what it was apparently an analeptic, like something that stimulates your respiratory center that they used to use to treat phenobarbital overdose. Oh, for F's sake. All right. Wild. Way to reach into the widest possible. Dang, Dave. Differential. Dave. You need a lupus on there. We're Except good. it's like there's Nike in there. It's N-I-K-E. So we can't possibly be able to say that on the pod, right? Uh, yeah, no, no. Corporate Dave, capture. We're conflict free. just trying to get us in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. I'm more Dave. of an Adidas in my guy. Dave. So. <laughs> Excellent guest, Dave. Thanks for writing into the show. Uh, very fun to go down that. Uh, this one comes from Richard Gray, RN, BSN, C-SPY. Awesome. All right. Hello, Ryan. Given the patient's presentation, I'm highly suspicious of salicylate toxicity until proven otherwise. I'm always highly suspicious of salicylate. You are suspicious. I, I'm a suspicious guy. Symptoms are consistent with this toxidrome, including vomiting, tachycardia, tachypnea, hyperthermia, and respiratory alkalosis. Great. Given the history of myalgias with hepatic dysfunction, I suspect rhabdomyolysis. I love it. That AST isn't always from the liver, guys. Come on now. My suspicion of salicylate toxicity is increased with reports that she is on her menstrual cycle, as I think of misuse of OTC products such as Pamprin. Love it. Obviously, in addition to salicylate level, I'd want an acetaminophen level, a creatinine kinase, a serum iron level should also be attained. Ooh, interesting. Multi-system organ failure. Ooh, kind of that's a good one. Um, my differential would include iron toxicity, stimulants, amphetamines, sympathomimetics, or caffeine. I love it. I've never really seen a hot iron, but it does happen. Yersinia pestis. That's what this is. That's and, the one. It just came into your brain all of yeah, a sudden, fully yeah. formed. Uh, until the labs returned, I would advise external cooling and benzodiazepines. Awesome. 
Fair. I look forward to hearing the case in the next podcast. I'm a C spy for the West Virginia. West Virginia. Yeah, shout out West Virginia Poison Center. Awesome. I actually found your podcast back in 2021 when I was studying for the C spy exam. I scored 116. Whoa. Oh, hey. That's very high on my first attempt. Woo-hoo. Way to go. And your episode on lead toxicity helped with that. Well, that is awesome to hear. That warms the cockles of my toxins. Uh, thank you for the great content. Well, thank you for writing in, Richard. That's really cool. I, and I'm glad to hear that sometimes the things we make are useful. Okay. <laughs> uh, that was a great gust, too. I like to iron. It's kind of fresh. That what? is a good one. That's a good fresh. Great way to die. <laughs> great. Yeah, just really. I mean, really. You know? Absolutely. That's a good one. That's that's on my list of like top 10 scariest overdoses. Oh, yeah. When they're Big real time. deal. Big time, like a real iron. Yeah. Pass. Hard pass. Unsubscribe. Um, the next one we got from Matt Colbeck. This is another Tox fellow. I'm impressed at all the Tox fellows. Ooh. Way to go, guys. It says, love the show. Glad to have a chance to submit a guest for the upcoming episode. For context, I'm a first-year medical toxicology fellow at Upstate New York. Let's get it upstate. You guys are just repping upstate. Yeah. Uh, definitely an interesting, though obviously unfortunate case. I have a few thoughts and a guess, which I'll try to organize. I'll start with the TLDR. Matt, brother. I love that he did a TLDR. I cannot. We're gonna. <laughs> I'm going to find you. We're going to be best friends. My guess is dinitrophenol. Well, why don't you explain why? He goes on to say, the initial <laughs> symptoms are pretty nonspecific, which is fair. It's difficult to narrow which differential based on the symptoms, such as myalgias and vomiting, which can be shared among a number of medical and toxicologic ideologies. Similarly, there's a number of cases of hepatotoxicity and leukocytosis. Hyperthermia is interesting and obviously comes with its own toxicologic differential, which is true. Uh, These are some things that I don't think fit the entire picture. If this is a 14 list differential, (laughs) we are breaking up, man. All right. All right. Cardioactive steroids. It's only five. Early nausea and vomiting would be expected with acute cardioactive steroid poisoning, though the tachycardia and hyperthermia do not fit, nor do the weeks of symptoms prior to liver injury. Fair. Number next. Colchicine. GI symptoms would be expected as would an initial leukocytosis also. Although it would be difficult to tell from the vignette, I suspect the the decompensation was rapid for colchicine poisoning and would not explain the temperature or the body fluid discoloration. Mm. Mm -hmm. Next, acetaminophen. I would be remiss to not try and shoehorn acetaminophen into a toxic (laughs) differential is my new favorite sentence. It <laughs> might fit the initial nonspecific symptoms as well as hepatotoxicity in a massive overdose, might even expect some mitochondrial dysfunction. I like that. Though I don't think the point of causing uncoupling or hypothermia, too many pieces that don't fit here, bad puzzle. I added that. Salicylate might be expected Might be expected to cause GI symptoms and hypothermia. Likely as a preterminal event, it's plausible, but again, I don't think the time course or overall clinical picture points to severe salicylate. I think the hyperthermia is the key piece of information to tie the presentation together. And assuming this is a toxicological cause of hyperthermia and not fever from endogenous sources, e.g. sepsis, toxic shock, etc., the differential narrows relatively quickly. The big three that come to mind are serotonin toxicity, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, and malignant hyperthermia. The other class I think are of our uncouplers of oxidative phosphorylation. You just named everything that makes you hot. I think this is unlikely to be malignant hyperthermia without some indication provided in the history, such as exposure to culprit medication, and seemingly of more insidious onset, there's no mention of medications, which would make make me suspicious for serotonin toxicity or 
neuroleptic malignant syndrome. There's also no mention of the classic exam findings, rigidity, clonus, et cetera, that would undoubtedly accompany hyperthermia of this degree. Although it's possible that these features were not just reported, there's one clue that leads me away from these diagnoses, and it's the yellow peritoneal and pleural fluid. I think it's an uncoupler. The GI symptoms, tachycardia, respiratory alkalosis, hyperthermia, rapid deterioration, all would fit with poisoning in an uncoupler. While there are a few of these to choose from, phenoxy herbicides... 2,4-dinitrophenol, MCPA, and dinitrophenol, I think it's dinitrophenol. I think he thinks it's dinitrophenol, which is historically a weight loss agent, which is still illicitly used on occasion, has been described to cause yellow discoloration of the skin, mucosal membranes, stomach contents, the organs, which is why I believe this patient was poisoned with the uncoupler, dinitrophenol. Sorry for the lengthy and somewhat disjointed reply. Looking forward to the reveal in the episode. Matt Kolbeck, we just read your entire PhD thesis. Was well thought out. It was well written. I like all everything that you had in there, Matt. How in the world you got all that out? I'm impressed. I, I feel like I was like it was the end of a Sherlock Holmes episode, and he was. I mean, just, fair I was to be watching. Fair. You know, they were doing cutscenes to all the clues that came up and telling right. us why we were why Watson was uh, twist off turns. The whole time. To really his great. defense, he did give us the TLDR. Yes. Oh, he I did give it. us the TLDR, Matt. Hey. Get it, I brother. Said, I know. Colbeck. I now know the inner workings of Doctor Colbeck's mind, and I appreciate Colbeck. that. Uh, all right, great guesses. We're hearing a lot of themes here. Hearing a lot of uncouplers of oxidative phosphorylation, specifically yellow ones. I love that we're bringing up a lot of the other ones. Toxicology is some of the most fun colors. This next guess comes from Sandy. It says, "I'm a PGY one resident interested in emergency medicine and toxicology." All right, and- Sandy. Yeah, I'm going to go with a simplish answer and say maybe she was taking a combo of acetaminophen and aspirin and or an NSAID, i.e. pamperin, mydol. If she was taking these in excess, the acetaminophen may have caused all the liver stuff and maybe the yellow fluid in the peritoneal cavity was Billy. Love it. She did have an elevated bilirubin. And then her other signs, symptoms like vomiting, hyperthermia, and respiratory acidosis could have been from salicylate poisoning. I enjoy your show so much. Thank you, Sandy. I really appreciate that. I drive an hour to my hospital every day, so this keeps me entertained. Well, and happy I'm not shouting into the void, Sandy. That is nice. Uh, Also, I think this is the first multi-agent guess. So we're now outside the box, not just an infectious cause. It could be multiple agents. I like that you're putting all the toxidromes together. Yeah. Yeah. Good combo. Absolutely. And we know there's a lot of that out there. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna let Dr. Arns finish it off here with our final guesser. So B52 for the crazy says a pesticide like 2,4-dinitrophenol, no punctuation. Is it a question? Is it an exclamation? I like to think it's an exclamation. So I'm gonna say it a pesticide like 2,4-dinitrophenol. Shout it from the rooftops. Well, Get it. we had a lot of great guesses here. Dr. Arns, would you like to share with our listening community? What our actual toxin was today. I think a lot of people got it right. It was 2,4-dinitrophenol. Shout out to a lot of our listeners who got it. Unbelievable. I'm right? impressed. Okay, I'm not going to lie. I actually had to put a red herring in there because I thought it would be too easy. I've I've gotten a lot of guesses over the over the time here. And there's almost always, no matter what we put, one guess for dinitrophenol. So it's definitely on... The mind of, of our listeners, which I appreciate. because And it's my favorite, favorite toxin. But I was like, well, if I just say this person died and they were yellow, everyone's going to immediately right. figure it out. So I had to, 
I am might have fudged that the T Billy was elevated. Oh, it was your fault. Yeah, but it was. Look at all the better differentials we got when we put that in there. You heard right? it here, folks. Meigs. It it's classic Meigs. Meigs. Yeah. Clear. Well, we have to choose a listener winner who's going to get one of the most prized possessions um, known to humanity, which is a Poison Lab sticker that is applicable to any hard, non-porous surface. Oh, good. I'm still recording. I was really worried I wasn't recording. Okay, sorry. <laughs> As you can tell, I have anxiety about that. Hi, all. Ryan just clicked the stop recording button while making a joke about how he gets nervous about stopping recording. His life really is more challenging than you would think. Um, well, for the listeners, we just had a little bit of an, an error. As I was making a joke about how much anxiety to get over accidentally turning the recording off. I did that. So best laid plans of mice and men. Anyways, the winner of this episode is Dr. Matt Kolbeck for putting in such a massive effort into uh, his his response. So That's right. We're going to invest back in Matt Kolbeck. That's right. Well, you invested in this and we're investing in you. That's so right. Thank you. If you want to send your address to the show, we will make sure you get a highly coveted Poison Lab sticker. For display on any hard non porous surface. All right. Well, at this point, we usually uh, like to clue in a little bit or do a little bit of a deep dive into the toxin. I know this is truthfully. So I asked Dr. Irons, I was like, what mm-hmm. toxin would you like to talk about? Like something you can maybe do a little, you know, freestyle jazz dance on yep. uh, for five to 10 yeah. minutes. Yeah. When she suggested she dinitrophenol. I was thrilled because this is one of my favorite toxins too. So uh, I'm going to let Dr. Irons take it away. Would you mind giving us a little bit of education about what this toxin is, where it's from, how it works, what we do about it, or anything you feel like is relevant? I do. And I, um, so dinitrophenol, it was originally developed as part of an explosive. I think it was in World War One in, I want to say France, if memory serves. Um, and they found the majority of the original descriptions were out of occupational exposures for these patients. And if you pull, I'm most of what I'm using for my references comes from this great GMT article in 2011 from Dr. Grundling, who this is a group out of the UK who y'all have done some amazing review papers. And I super stand you, I think is the way the kids say it. You super stand oh, yeah. somebody. Yeah, is that right? Okay. I got it. Gen Z. You got it. Hey, I'm pretty healthy. Right, I can hang. Um, uh, back to it. Anyway, it was then in the um, 30s that it was discovered as a weight loss drug. And so, and which is still used today. It is available. Anything is available on the internet, to be clear, for all the kids who are listening. I think, I think we need to point out something fantastic about the history. It was discovered as a weight loss drug because it was used as an industrial dye. And then they mm-hmm. realized this guy in San Francisco, ML Tainter, was like, um, all these people who work in this factory are losing weight. And then they You're like, a- they are svelte. Like these yeah. are some good looking factory workers. Everybody looks great. What is your secret? Right. So then they had all these factory workers losing weight. And I, I don't know, for me, I would be like, oh, hmm, sounds like they're all getting cancer from some chemical that they're working with. Uh-huh. But I guess they figured out that they were being exposed to dinitrophenol and that was causing the weight loss. So then they did one clinical trial on it. And by the end of that of the year after that clinical trial, something like several hundred thousand people had started taking it. This is basically like if we just noticed that everyone who worked at the like HP or Epson 
printer die manufacturer was losing a bunch of weight. And then you realize, oh, it's because they're exposed to the, the printer die. So then you just buy a bunch of yellow printer die on Amazon and start and start eating it. People were just eating random chemicals because they noticed that these workers were losing weight. What could possibly go wrong? And like the fact that you just said that there's probably a group of people who are going to go out and crack open their Epson printer die and be like Feldman said, I'm going to look, I'm going to look amazing. And actually in retrospect, you know, if you go online, you can find some weird holes like people eating methylene blue or drinking their own urine. So this isn't actually as weird as I think it is, but humans just continue to perplex me. What was really interesting is in this article from 1918, it says in this, they were like, we really need a treatment for this. And then it goes on to say, it is well known that the popularity of a drug for this purpose fluctuates in direct proportion to the newspaper space given to the sensational accounts of its effects. Oh, uh, wow. the we early really, internet. Yeah, we are trapped. We can't Man. get away from our human tendencies. We even can't. In 1918. We've just always been the same. He pulled yeah. that off. A, for those of you who can't see, we're on a Zoom. And he went back and he pulled it off his shelf, dusted <laughs> it off, freaked it open. That came straight from a book. That's right. That's right. And like when you look at the studies, like you can lose like one and a half kilos a week, like ridiculous amounts of weight. There's actually this great YouTube video out there from a guy named Chubby Emu. He is a hematologist. But he's really big into like the bodybuilding world and deals with like, I think he did talks at one point. And he actually interviews a dinitrophenol user. And it's really a fascinating interview. It's someone who lived through a dinitrophenol overdose uh, and chronically taking it. And this guy describes at one point how he was sitting in a bathtub of ice for hours at a time, just drinking milkshake on milkshake on milkshake because his body was generating so much heat and needed so much energy to do so. Oh, that's great. I'll put a link to that video in the show notes. The reason that it does that, that how dinitrophenol affects us is a, is a few different ways. So the biggest weight loss I'm, I don't want to use the word benefit, is that it increases basal metabolic rate. So the reason that your exercise at all works is essentially this in pill form. It increases your basal metabolic rate, which means you burn excess fat and carbohydrates to an extreme level. Okay, now I don't want to derail this, but you were talking about the basal, basal metabolic rate. And I really wanted to dive into how it actually does this. Hop in, let's get I want in to make, here. Unless I'm about to jump in on something. Nope, here. hop in. Okay, so so we have to talk about how we take the calories from the food that we eat and store it into energy that we can use at any time we want. And then we need to talk about how dinitrophenol disrupts that storage. I think for some listeners, they may not have heard of the electron transport chain. Oh, that's a good chain. But I was just on a ski trip with some friends. They're non-medical. And I wanted to practice explaining the electron transport chain. And I think I got it in a way that they... They understood. This Can sounds I, like a rad party. What else do you talk about on the ski lift? Do you mind if I do a quick uh, blurb on the ETC? Get it, brother. All right. Hey, everybody. It's Ryan. And let me tell you what I just learned. A podcast is not the best place for me to have a 12-minute, primarily one-sided conversation of me rambling through the concepts of the electron transport chain, naming random compounds, and saying things like entropy. I would like to sincerely apologize to Dr. Ahrens for what I put her through. But hey, it's the future. You don't have to listen to that. So instead, I'm going to record a quick summary of what I talked about here. Now, if mechanisms and physiology aren't what you're here for, 
Well, then really, what are you doing here? But you can skip ahead six minutes and you should be through the worst of it. Taco, can you drop some sweet lo-fi? Queuing up some fresh beats to send down your electron transport chain. Your body needs energy. We eat food for energy, but you can't actually use the energy from that food. You need to turn it into ATP, a readily available storage molecule. It's kind of like a glow stick. You turn it on when you need the light. That's what ATP is. You break off the phosphate when you need the energy. So how do I turn glucose into ATP? That's where the electron transport chain comes into play. You actually blow glucose up into a molecule called pyruvate, which then turns into another molecule called acetyl-CoA and goes through the Krebs cycle. Don't be too confused about the names. Just remember glucose gets turned into molecules that can kick off the Krebs cycle. The Krebs cycle generates a ton of reducing power. That just means compounds that can donate electrons. Those electrons then go through the electron transport chain. Okay, this is actually kind of cool. The electron transport chain are four different cellular complexes embedded into the mitochondrial membrane. We call them complex one through four. Each complex is more electronegative than the last, meaning they want electrons more than the other one did. So this reducing power goes to the electron transport chain and gives it an electron. The electron gets pulled down the chain by the increasingly electronegative complexes. So it's natural and energetically favorable for the electron to move down the chain. The movement of electrons is electricity or current and current generates force. So we actually call this electromotive force and the force of the electron moving down the chain can be used to do work. The work that it does is pump protons from the mitochondrial matrix into an intermembrane space doesn't really matter the point is you're concentrating protons in one area and when you concentrate something in an area they naturally want to diffuse in the actual podcast this is where i started talking about entropy i'm not going to do that here the point is there's a large amount of potential energy in those hydrogens wanting to diffuse back out into the matrix because they don't want to be concentrated in one space In fact, the amount of hydrogens that are stored in there are called a membrane potential. And the more hydrogen stored in there, the higher the membrane potential because there's more drive for them to want to diffuse out back into the matrix. You can kind of think of this like water at the top of a waterfall. It has a lot of potential energy, and as it falls down, that potential energy turns into kinetic energy. And on the way down, a waterfall can strike a water wheel and that potential energy can actually be transferred to the water wheel and used to store energy elsewhere. It's the same with these hydrogens. They're like water at the top of the waterfall, and we let them diffuse out, and they actually strike their own water wheel. It's called ATP synthase. It's an intracellular machine that is absolutely fascinating. As the hydrogen diffuses out, it turns this ATP synthase. There's actually molecular imaging of this happening it's very cool but the machine as it's turning grabs a phosphate and connects it with adenosine diphosphate to make adenosine triphosphate or atp so that's the basics of it through a lot of complicated things like oxidation and the krebs cycle you turn glucose into molecules that can donate electrons we use the natural movement of those electrons down a chain to generate force to do the work of pumping hydrogens into the intramembrane space and we use the natural diffusion of those hydrogens from that space to turn a really cool machine called atp synthase that generates atp 
And then we can use ATP whenever we need to for cellular energy processes. Almost everything in your body needs energy. Although interestingly, contracting your muscles does not require energy. Actin and myosin will automatically form a cross bridge. But releasing that cross bridge does require energy. That's when we need to break an ATP molecule. That will come into play later. Okay. Ryan, if anyone is still awake, they probably want to know how dinitrophenol impacts this. Great point. So dinitrophenol is an uncoupler of oxidative phosphorylation. That's what we just talked about, by the way. You oxidize glucose, and they couple that to phosphorylating adenosine diphosphate. But how exactly does it uncouple this process? Well, dinitrophenol is a lipophilic acid. Acids like to deprotonate, right? They like to get rid of their hydrogen. So it will do that, especially in the mitochondrial matrix where it's actually alkaline because you're pumping so much hydrogen into the intermembrane space. Now, because dinitrophenol donated an H+, it is negatively charged. Normally, negatively charged compounds can't move through biologic membranes. Remember, it's a phospholipid bilayer, lipid, like non-water soluble. They don't like charged objects. Ionic things don't usually move through easily. But dinitrophenol is still lipophilic enough to move through the membrane and enter that intermembrane space where you just pumped all that hydrogen. And because there's so many hydrogens in that area, even though dinitrophenol is an acid and doesn't like to have a proton on it, and the high concentration of protons within that area, it will get protonated. And now it's uncharged and will diffuse back across the membrane. Now, because we weren't able to store the potential energy of that hydrogen as an ATP, the energy needs to be released somehow. And it gets released as thermal energy. And that is why we see increased heat production in people who are poisoned by uncouplers of mitochondrial oxidative phosphorylation. You are turning your potential energy instead of storing it as chemical potential energy, you're releasing it as heat. This release of protons without going through ATP synthase is actually a natural mechanism for how you stay warm without shivering, but it's a lot more tightly regulated than using dinitrophenol. We'll talk about that a little bit later in the episode. Okay, with that, we're going to get back to our conversation with Dr. Arendt. And I know this probably seemed long, but it was about half as long as my prior ramblings. So, Thanks for sticking around, if that's what you were interested in. Okay, back to the regularly scheduled programming. So it just goes in there, steals a the hydrogen, comes back. Steals the yeah. hydrogen, comes back. Really? It, it's a chemical ionophore, essentially. And so now your hydrogens, instead of making those 38 ATP that they're supposed to do, now you have, like you said, all that potential energy that has to be released somehow. You know, like that work, it's either released as work, energy, or heat. Um. Or light, actually, which would be really cool. And oh, apparently man. the most, did you know that fireflies have like the most efficient light production? They almost 100% of the energy is emitted as light. None That's of it, wild. almost none of it is heat. Anyway. It's our final form. It's their final form. Exactly. They have reached their final form. So this is actually why people who take dinitrophenol present or any uncoupler of mitochondrial oxidative phosphorylation show up so hot. This is actually how your body regulates your uh, temperature in a way. It's called non-shivering thermogenesis. And in the mitochondria of your brown fat cells, you have this 
protein called uncoupling protein one, which literally goes into the membrane space, steals a hydrogen and pulls it back into the mitochondrial matrix. And then it causes you to release heat to mm. make, it's just a lot more tightly regulated than somebody eating printer dye and getting super hot. It's a new craze. The new I heard. It's what I heard. Right. So in everything that you've described is exactly correct. And so this is how, you know, at, at, I don't want to say a therapeutic dose at lower doses. It's just a great weight loss drug, right? You just burn off a lot of fat, a lot of carbohydrates. The problem is that once you get this sort of discrepancy between your ability to create ATP and your energy stores, once those get outstripped, you don't, you can't make energy anymore. So basically all of your cellular function ceases after some time, which means you cannot function and, and everything stops. And then you just get this extreme hyperthermia that creates its own problems, right? It's just multi-organ system failure and denaturing of proteins and it's bad. Okay. And so that's dinitrophenol in and of itself is just, is that's how it kills people. And it, it's pretty spectacular. <clears throat> So you stick with me. We're going to go on a journey together. Are you ready, listenership? Let's go. Hop in. Hop into my brain train. When I think about this, I'm going to start by talking about someone who was very important to me, who is Rosie the Tarantula. So Rosie the Tarantula, and just stick with me, Rosie the Tarantula was a pet tarantula that we had at one of our poison centers. She was a rescue tarantula that somebody had like brought to us. So Rosie died eventually, as all things do. And, you know, like when spiders die, they like curl up. Do you know why they curl up? Oh, um, um, well, can I make a guess? Let's do it. Volume loss. And they have volume loss. Kind of. They don't kind have of. they don't have muscles. Like they do. Have right. Muscles, I guess. Isn't it interesting? So if you've never thought about how spiders move, what's interesting about spiders... Which, how have you never thought about that? That's Right. I mean, you don't ever sit around and be like, how do spiders move? <laughs> so the way that spiders work, which is interesting, is they, they do have muscles, but they don't <laughs> move by the use of opposing muscle groups, right? So they have a group of muscles that like move their legs, I guess, inward, for lack of a better term, sort of like AB towards their body. And the rest of them are hydraulic. So they use like hemolymph, right? They use hemolymph that they pump to, I'm, I'm going to use the word extend. I don't know if that's correct, but to sort of do the other half of the motion. So they're literally like hydraulic and like hydraulic machines. That's wild. Is, right. And so when a spider dies, it like curls up into a ball. So oh, wait, when, when I, I've definitely noticed some hemolymph splattered on the wall after I killed a spider. That's what right. they're using to power their legs. Correct. Exactly. Okay. You have destroyed you have destroyed their hydraulic system. Yes. So that was when Rosie died, which kind of made me think about why they curl up. When humans die, and this is a little bit of a trigger warning for your for your listeners, we're going to talk about what happens when people die if you have kids listening. So when we die and you have that period of like flaccidity, right? So you you like watch the movie, they all go flaccid. And then what happens over time that we all have kind of heard of is rigor mortis, right? So rigor mortis happens. So if we think about the way that muscles work, you have actin and myosin that cross-link, they pull together. So your muscle filaments pull together and you get muscle contraction. In order to release that cross-link, you actually need energy in the form of ATP to do that. 
So after we die, about two to six hours or so, depending on your body habitus, et cetera, and, and what environment you die in, we start to see rigor mortis. And what's interesting about rigor mortis is that it almost always follows a prescribed pattern. It starts in the eyes, the jaws, the face, and then it tends to affect the bigger muscles and even the internal organs. So over time, you'll actually get complete rigor or stiffening of all of your muscles. And it's interesting to me in that it just follows a prescribed pattern in, in muscle progression in every human. Probably has something to do with glycogen stores and lactate production in those particular muscle groups, why it follows that exact progression. And just figured your legs were too heavy to rig right, right away. Negatory ghost rider. That is wrong on right. all fronts. Um and I bring up Rosie because in the same poison control I was at at the time. We actually treated a patient for dinitrophenol poisoning, a patient that we had seen, uh, and this has been presented elsewhere, but a, a descriptive patient would be someone who came in, you know, around noon, who had taken it about, I believe it was about 10 hours earlier, who had come in hyperthermic, tachycardic, and tachypnic. You know, one of your body's responses to all this increased basal metabolic rate and part of your inability to complete your aerobic synthesis is you also start to create a bunch of acids and stuff like that. So one way your body can deal with it is taking these huge, what we call tidal volumes, so moving air in and out to help expire CO2 and try and, and buffer your own acidemia. Continue to be more tachycardic, altered, hyperthermic, and their temperature got up to 106 Ultimately was intubated and jaw clamp occluded the ET tube. Ooh. Chest became rigid, heart stopped, temperature up to 108. And then we were unable to do compressions because the chest was so rigid, arms became rigid. Mm. And what's amazing about this drug and, and what makes it horrible is this exact, remember that, that progression of rigor mortis starts in the eyes, starts in the jaws moves down is that it follows that exact that exact pattern because essentially what you've done is outstripped your your ATP stores and now your myocytes your actin you're unable to release those crosslinks anymore so essentially you've got somebody who's gone into rigor mortis in front of you and it's it's like nothing you've ever seen before that is pretty wild it's something that i never want to see again and like the the great american actor nicolas cage said in the rock. It's one of those things that we wish we can disinvent. That one presented at NACCT. That one yeah, time. that was the CPC that was paired with mine. Um, I've I remember seeing they actually have mm -hmm. an unfortunately a video of this that because it was a trauma resuscitation that was recorded. Mm -hmm. And they basically they they intubated the person with sucks, I thought, which of course causes all your muscles to clamp. And if you have no ATP left, well, guess what? You can't unclamp your muscles. And then you're like stuck in rigor mortis because your dinitrophenol have made you so inefficient in energy production. You have no ATP left to relax your muscles. That mm -hmm. is mind blowing. I mean, that's mm -hmm. just wild. Mm -hmm. That is wild. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is a wild case. So that's the, that's Rosie. She died and then ran out of ATP, went into rigor and pulled in their, that's why they kind of crinkle up and they don't have abductors. So there's no extension. And that's why you see spiders sort of curled up into a ball when they die. That's where we're bringing Rosie. That's Rosie. That's how yeah. Rosie, we bring her back, all comes back to Rosie. She, after she died, it smelled so bad. 
for everybody listening, spiders are not pets. They're just like robots that eat, by the way. <laughs> I mean, it was, I have never been around tarantulas that died before, but it was not great. Rosie, we miss you. So Yes. Well, that is an, an amazing journey through the, the DNP clinical course. It is such a fascinating toxin, not only from the history, but the mechanism. We used to do like choose your favorite toxin or like what toxin would you be? And I was always like, I'd be dinitrophenol because sometimes I feel like I work twice as hard and get nothing done. And that's pretty much what happens here. Spectacular. Dinitrophenol. Just say no. Oh, I did want to bring up treatment. We don't have any therapies for it that we have identified that are effective or helpful, supportive cares, anything that we have tried. When I say we, we as a community of physicians, we have not found anything that's helpful. So it just depends on the dose that you take, to be perfectly honest. The dose always makes the poison. In this case, if you take just the right amount, there's nothing we can do. You said there's really nothing we can do. If you're about to say dantrolene, I'm leaving the podcast. Absolutely not. I Although, knew it. It does sound a little bit like malignant hyperthermia, like Don't when you it. tube someone and their CO2 spikes. But I wanted to read this like 1918 article of how to treat it. They just talk about lavaging them, and that's pretty much it. They I'm don't sure. release humors. <laughs> Please bleed we their humors bleed out. Of to me. release the humors. <laughs> Great segment. Thank you, Dr. Arns, for taking us down that journey. I'm really just thinking about how spiders move for quite a while. Right. We got to jump into our next segment here. We're going to run out of time. Let's do it. I think it's time for toxicologists versus the internet. Wait, no, this is stump the talk. So for the listeners, if you haven't heard this before, we're going to go through a case or two each of a fatal or non-fatal poison. These are real. And we do want to point out, you know, this was an unfortunate tragedy for someone. But we also want people to learn from this because those who need to treat this need to understand how to recognize and manage it. So the purpose of this is to learn from the differential. And hopefully, if you ever see something like this come across your door, you'll know what to do. So would you like to go first or would you like me to go first? would. Perfect. So this is, I have two favorite case reports from the literature ever. This does not come from NPDS, by the way, but this, um, two favorites. I'm going to give you my first. Okay. Are you Just, ready and excited? I am ready. I'm double excited. Dinitrophene excited. And I, I just, yeah. So the only rules, no giving away what the poison is and no, obviously there's an antidote like redacted if it's only used for that. But I would like to point out that Dr. Feldman cannot tell me what to do. Moving on. <laughs> All right. No, We've got. A 65-year-old man with a history of alcohol abuse and seizure disorder presents the emergency department with altered mental status, an increased anion and gap metabolic acidosis, and acute kidney injury. Okay, hold on. Alcohol abuse, seizure disorder, <clears throat> anion gap, and you said uh, acute kidney injury. So obviously, he had an alcohol withdrawal seizure, led to a lactic acidosis, increases anion gap, and he has rhabdo. That's why his kidneys are hurt. Done. Case over. Great. This was great. I'm sorry, everybody. I hope you're big fans of the pod. Thanks for listening. <laughs> you are 100% wrong. Okay. Um, and there is no amount of information that I can give you that you are going to get this right. Oh, perfect. All right. Um, by the way, if you want to know what happened, he did take phenytoin and he did have a super th- therapeutic phenytoin level hmm. um, at 49. Uh, I believe this is micrograms per mil. Ooh. Right? And yeah, he went high. on, progressed the next 40 hours into oliguric renal failure. 
Hmm. That was not what? responsive to ferrosamide, if that matters to you. Wait. You will continue to not get this diagnosis. Wait, wait. I don't know what... Wait, wait. I just clarify. Yep. This is not a phenytoin ingestion. It is not. Okay, so I'm betting... I wonder if it's something that interacts with phenytoin. If you get this, you either knew it or you have a spy behind me, and that would be awesome. That would be pretty cool. So hold on. He came in, depressed mental status. Yep. All right. Okay. We'll continue to worsen. Well, let's say, how about you had somebody, let me tell it a different way, somebody who drank something who came in altered and I get metabolic acidosis and renal failure. Hmm. You say it that way. So it's a liquid. My clue is it's a liquid. It's a liquid. Okay. It's a liquid. Uh, if you were it, not thinking too hard about it, what would you think? That they drink. Well, well, hold on. That they, well, ethylene glycol. Or right. Methyl. That's what you would think, yeah, right? Eventually. Would you not uh, think that? It was not. Okay. Okay. Very good. Very good. Renal failure. Was there like a bottle? That was It, it like was a, in a bottle. Is it a cleaning agent? Absolutely not. Okay. Okay. Was it a sanitizing agent? Absolutely not. Okay, I have no. Okay, all right. Give give us the rest of the course. I'll all lock right. in one guess, and I'll. That's I'm... it. He just went on, and he just had renal failure. He went on dialysis. Um. Okay. His phenytoin concentration came down. Okay. And he then... went on to have some ethanol withdrawal. If that's okay. helpful, he lived. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he lived. He lived. He survived. Well, I need to know what your is your most. I, here's my clue that I need. What is the most exciting part about this case for you? The phenytoin? Absolutely it he, not. It's what he ingested. It's just the fact that somebody swallowed it and I have a case report. Okay. Okay. Hold on. What would be so wild that Dr. Iron, it's, it's, it's tarantula hydraulic fluid. Yes, exactly. That's what it is. Hemolymph from a, a multiple yeah. tarantulas. Mm. Do you remember the Orbitz drink from the 90s? You remember that? Like the gum? No. You remember it was a drink called Orbitz and it had like little floating balls in it? No. I do. No? This is a terrible story. Oh, the, uh, for those of us who remember, who are not Dr. Feldman, uh, Orbitz was this horrible drink that was like a soda. Oh, my God. Like, almost like little jelly floaties in it. Yeah, I see it here. Yeah. Wow, and looks what terrifying. shape? Oh, it no. Looks... This is a lava lamp. It's this a, is a lava, lava lamp. lamp. Oh, my God, Feldman. This is why I love this. I have an even better one. Uh, this was a lava lamp ingestion. Okay. So what's. So this was a guy who cracked open. So if you guys ever had like one of the original lava lamps from like the 70s, 80s, whatever, they came in a glass bottle that actually had like a pop top on it, just like you would open like a soda that or a beer or whatever that you pop off and you could just drink it. So this lava lamp, the fluid part, it consisted of polyethylene glycol. Uh-huh. And this was of a, so if we think about large or high molecular weight polyethylene glycol that's just you know peg it's just go lightly it's what yeah. you need if you got to blow out your colon right oh, so the heavily. lower molecular weight ones it's just like ethylene glycol it causes an acidosis it causes renal failure so this was a lava lamp ingestion it's wild. not even my favorite one that's wild right okay yeah well lava i, lamp I really ingestion. want to go through the metabolic i'm going to google some stuff later because I wonder what it how it how it gets metabolized. As, like, I'm not sure what, what it, if we know what it does, but essentially it's just a low molecular weight. Glycol, That's wild, right? I love that. So if anyone out there has another thing that they need to be afraid of and to have on their differential for an anion gap metabolic acidosis, if you could start including it, that'd be great. 
Yeah, it's now it's now mud piles. Mud, it's one of the mud, L's now. Yeah, mud piles or gold mark. L is for lava lamp. Perfect. I love it. Well, okay. Well, now I just want to hear the other one. Let's do the other one. Right okay. Now. All right. All right. The other one. Good <laughs> this one. one is even harder. Perfect. All right. This one is a 51-year-old male who was brought into the emergency department after a house fire. He fell asleep with a lit cigarette in his hand, setting his fire, setting fire to the couch and the carpet. He came into the ED complaining of central chest pain. Uh, he had a a burn, which was actually completely inconsequential to the case. Hmm. Um, he otherwise had an unremarkable evaluation. I will tell you um, that he had some um, unusual laboratory studies, and I'll just get to them. So he did have a carbon monoxide level of 5.4. He had a methemoglobin of 0.7%. On his chemistry panel, he had an ethanol that was undetectable. They observed him. They gave him some fluids, and he ended up developing a worsening acidosis, Mm. followed by hematemesis. And he was noted to have a severe hypercalcemia. Whoa. Okay, hold on. Got fluids. Got fluids. Worsened acidemia. And then he's had hematemesis and then pulled out of a house fire, had a burn, Mm. had a worsening acidosis over like two hours, got worsening hypercalcemia and hematemesis. Okay. Give me a differential for that, son. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Well, you know, the high calcium is throwing me. If you said like low calcium and hematemesis, I think hydrofluoric acid ingestion. Or even from a burn, white phosphorus, because you get calcium phosphate. But that's not, none of this is matching up. So when I think high calcium, there's a few things that jump into place. First off, I think he ate an entire bottle of Tums during the house fire. Second, I think. Milk alkali syndrome, the the thing that never actually exists. I've seen it once. Somebody tried to order alcetonin for it. Sure. The other thing that i think of high well i think of granulomatous hypercalcemia does he have butt injections is this a um i don't know what his butt looked like okay fair this has got to be because of the context i think you like interesting ingestions he was in a fire what do you do in a fire you got to put it out what do you put it out with a fire extinguisher this man ate fire extinguisher foam and or some sign of some kind of flame retardant Oh, that's great. No. This guy, the night before he set himself on fire, drank a half of a glitter lamp. Of a glitter lamp? A glitter lamp. And they. Oh. what's great about this case report um, is that they have pictures. This is also from Dr. Grunling. I mean, just super stan, these folks out in London. Um, it just happened to be one of her case reports as well. They actually have a picture. So the um, the glitter lamp fluid that's in there is almost like a hundred percent calcium chloride the reason being is it provides a fluid to like just keep the glitter i don't know afloat i guess is the best word and they have a picture so he ended up perforating and they ended up having to do remove part of his colon and they actually have a picture of the colon that they removed with little flecks of green glitter in there wow yep so more things to worry about that you never thought about that is this is uh, glitter lamp ingestion. They called it a sparkle lamp. A sparkle lamp. Mm-hmm. They they got the sparkle lamp and they have a picture of the sparkle lamp. They sent the fluid off. It had a pH of one point five and a calcium concentration of greater than a thousand millimoles per liter. What did his calcium get to? It's just like calcium. It, he probably didn't 
absorb that much. I got to think. Well, he did. I think it was probably just caustic. He obviously absorbed some. Yeah. yeah. That's wild. Right? Right. Top 10 things you'd never think of. Well, you know, looks kind of yummy sometimes. But, well, for the listeners, we'll make sure those are in the show notes so you can see the glare. Oh, great, pa- great papers. Absolutely. And the lava lamp. That one is, uh, that's good. I like it. Um, well, I can throw one at you if you, if you want to do one. Oh, man, I'm going to get him wrong. Let's do it. Let's get up in there. Okay. Hit me. Are you feeling animal, vegetable, mineral? I like to phase shift. I like a good non-Newtonian fluid. Like, I, I like a little, a little oobleck, you know? Let's An do it. Oobleck. Okay. Right. Hold on. Let me see if I even have these here. Okay. Okay. I don't know. This could be a fun one. Or, or it'll be horrible. We'll find out. Okay. 53-year-old male, non-smoker. Mm-hmm. Presented with a dry cough and chest pain. Mm-hmm. No medical history. Mm-hmm. He was treated with antibiotics in the past week because he had chest pain, cough, and fever that developed, you know, after work. Uh, after he got metal fume fever. So his symptoms acutely worsened today. Okay. <laughs> worsening started four hours after work. Oh. He works as a technician who repairs boilers. Stop it. On the day of presentation, he had been repairing a large vat used to treat aluminum and had spent 60 minutes cutting through an unknown alloy with a butane torch. The case report did list the temperature at which that alloy melts. Good for them. Oh, Um, sure. It was an incredibly detailed case. He did not use any type of personal respiratory protection. Smart. Four hours after finishing the work, he presented with progressive dyspnea and had to be admitted into the hospital. So that was when he was admitted. Basically, uh-huh. had a week of respiratory symptoms, and then they acutely got worse after he cut through some alloy. Tuberculosis. The, obviously, TB. He's on ripe therapy. On the third day, his clinical condition worsened, and he became hypoxemic. And his chest x-ray revealed a bilateral interstitial pattern. They did a broad infectious workup, looked for all sorts of bacteria, viral, and fungal. Everything was negative. So TB is now out. On day five, they added steroids. On day seven, he was intubated for worsening hypoxemia. And on day 10, they repeated the cultures. Everything still negative. They give his cardiac output, his PCWP, and his systemic vascular measures. This was the most detailed Dang. case report I've wow. ever read. Hair color, eye color, yep, social exactly. security number. Radiologic examination revealed bilateral white lungs. He had a high white blood cell count. Then he died on day 19 as he continued to develop respiratory failure despite ventilation, couldn't mm. oxygenate or ventilate. And then that's interesting. We're going to cardiac arrest. You uh, know what's interesting? The description of those symptoms sounds very much like an oxi- like a nitrogen oxide of some kind or an oxide of nitrogen mm-hmm. or a phosgene, mm-hmm. something like that. Because metal fume fever, I don't know, typically progresses for respiratory failure that I'm aware of. It sounds like an oxide of nitrogen. Okay. Or phosgene, phosphine, something like that. Would you like to lock in your guess? No. Okay. I like to keep it loosey-goosey. I like to think that I have the right answer and that it's in there somewhere. Okay. Is it TB? If it's COVID, I quit. It's obviously myasthenia gravis. Uh, Okay. This one, and this is why I chose this case, because I thought it was so fascinating. And because we've had to deal with a bunch of kind of consults related to this the answer it is a type of metal fever 
and it is the one type that causes a delayed progression in events. What is that? Cadmium metal fume. Oh, cadmium, duh. Which I always remember. This is my dumb mnemonic for it. Cadmium. You found the Cadbury egg because it's special because it's the special metal fume fever mm. <laughs> that actually kills you. I know it's mm. ridiculous. The more ridiculous the mnemonic, mm. the likely you are to remember. But judgment. They did an X-ray. They sent this this alloy. They actually got it out of the vat, sent it to this industrial hygienist who did an X-ray of it. It was like, oh, this is ten percent cadmium. There's also a whole bunch of other stuff like lead and and they, and they were like, well, but we don't think it's the other stuff because. We've only ever seen this report with cadmium, so it must be cadmium. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I thought it was an interesting one. Stumped cadmium. Hey, that that was a uh, a. I only remember this because we recently had some urine cadmium levels we'd had to chase down, Ooh, and uh, spent a lot of time with reading some ATSDR stuff on cadmium. And I was like, oh yeah, this thing does the weird polymers. You. I forgot about you. That is yeah. that is a great little nugget for those of you taking your tox boards in twenty twenty four. Cadmium. It was a fascinating one, and we've been, for some reason, we've had a rash of urinary cadmiums, which you can see from smoking sometimes, and, and there's like a small amount of cadmium in cigarette smoke sometimes, but it's uh, led me to do a lot of reading about Itai Itai disease again, which is, uh, it's always a, ah, so for the listeners, cadmium. You find it in cigarettes. It can end up in your urine from cigarettes. It can end up from other things, potentially from from vape batteries once in a while. Uh, and if you live in a Japanese region where all of your water is contaminated with cadmium, uh, you develop renal injury from it, which then leads to a bone disease, and you get painful uh, bone lesions. And thus, the Japanese word for pain is or for ouch, is itai. So it leads to itai, itai disease. And for that reason, a lot of occupational health, they will monitor, if you are exposed to cadmium, they'll monitor urine cadmium creatinine ratios. And if it's above a certain level and some other biomarkers, they might like, I don't know, change your job or something. I don't know what they do, but it's pretty interesting. And then the inhaled version of cadmium uh, from metal fume fever is usually just like a uh, related to zinc oxides mm-hmm. and it causes a little bit of respiratory distress and fever and suddenly mm-hmm. you're better on the weekend which sounds great you feel the best on the weekend uh, and then okay. that'd be nice yeah and then symptoms slowly worsen so it's usually super benign but with cadmium apparently it can lead to a delayed progressive severe pulmonary uh, symptoms just like the oxides of nitrogen or phosgene so that's right it's a perfect uh, delayed toxic time bomb but yeah, that's. I thought that was a good nugget. That is interesting. That's another good reminder for your 2024 boards. Yeah, absolutely. Not All right. Well. well, you stumped me twice, so I had to stump you at least once. Yep, I done been stumped. Well played, sir. Um, we're we're rolling close to time here, and I did want to do a, if we can, Let's at least it. one question. Let's do it. And I think. It sounded like yours were going to be more fun than mine. My questions were about Fennybutt and Tianeptine, which here you go, everyone. If you don't know, Fennybutt is craziness and Tianeptine is a new drug you can buy at a gas station. So there you go. Tianeptine is just like, she's such an interesting girl, you know? Like she just like, it's just Tianeptine, Tianeptine. I never know how to say it. Hard A, soft A. Hard A, soft A. What are you going to do? You could pick one, you could go the other and you're not going to be right. But Tianeptine is just... It's interesting because it has, it like for shizzle has mu opioid receptor activity, yeah. but it doesn't have the full activity 
to it. Yeah. And it just is the most interesting, just interesting drug. We've had a bunch of like springs of withdrawal from it recently. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of really for both of them. I worry most about, well, I guess for Fenny Butt, I worry about withdrawal. By the way, if you haven't heard of Fenny Butt, we have an episode on it, episode 16. And we just published a systematic review of Fenny Butt Withdrawal, polysubstance versus single substance. Someone else needs to read it besides my mom. So cite yourself. Yeah. What's interesting about TNFDN to me is that it's a tricyclic antidepressant. But yeah, it but only doesn't really like do. Yeah, it's, right. It's, only it's in only shape. shape. Like it's like yeah. in theory, I'm kind of tall and I should be able to play basketball and I can't. Like That's, it's just in theory. You know what I mean? Like that is a really good point. I like, only in shape. <laughs> I like that. That's a good yeah. way to describe cyclobenzaprine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Precisely. I think the answer. I think the question that they were going to ask is what? Which is better, Fanny Butt or TNFDN? And the answer is neither. So, ooh, just don't. Just say no. Yeah, we continue to remind you not to do drugs, Internet. They don't listen. Just like don't don't buy them from a gas station. I mean, come on. It's not what it's for. I had an attending who used to say, like, you could try and buy opera tickets at the gas station. It's just not what it's for. That's That's not what it's there for. I have found two really interesting questions. One is kind of fun. And one is a really interesting philosophical question. But the first question, which I thought was a great question. Let's do it. Is what drug would you use to win a fist fight? Like my fists? In a fist. You are, <laughs> yeah, I have never been in a fist fight, to be clear. Yet the day is short. We have much time left. I have never been in a fist fight. But let's say that you found yourself Mortal Kombat, fist fight. Mm. What drug would be best in a fist fight? I mean, I feel like if I was just out there, I'm about to Mortal Kombat someone and I popped the top off a lava lamp and slugged it down, they would be like, this guy's. Lunatic. He's about to take you're, just, you're, you're playing the long game. You're I'm like, I'm gonna just make him here. drink this and then yeah. I'm gonna sit back. I uh do it. Wait, do I get to like do I need to cover my hands in the drug or I'm gonna ingest the drug? You are over look at you can do however you want, Boo Bear. Like this is your story. You are okay. about to be in a fist fight. What drug you can coach yourself in something, you can jump in something, you can swallow something. Well, I mean, the obvious answer is. You know, Wolverine style syringes of rocuronium in my hand that I'm just. Ah, oh, see, now judged. that is a great answer. Yeah. Just snickety snipe. And they, what are they going to do? I think that that's a much, that's a perfect answer. Yeah. And I that, think that's difficult to, to top. That's probably that's, what I'd go. It with. is dark. It is evil. It is yeah. perfect. I'm going to watch you slowly die and suffocate while you're. Yeah, wait, define win. Am I just supposed to incapacitate or is this like to the death? No, like I said, it's a fist fight. I never said it was to the death. I appreciate that you took it that far. I went pretty far. So, anybody who's about to get into a fist fight with Feldman, I, you know, there's, it's like when he breaks the pool cue and he's like, and there's, we're having tryouts. This is like how you pick a fellow. Got it. Yeah. Great. Bring your Sudan next. The best answer that I saw for it is PCP. Yeah, which is a great answer. But now I'm completely hooked on how you would punch someone with rock filled needles. Yeah, it would be difficult. Genius. More of a puncture. (laughs) It's more of a puncture. But I think PCP, PCP is such an interesting answer. I, I have not historically treated a lot of PCP. I don't know if you've seen a lot of PCP where you are. Like between the West Coast, the East Coast, and the South, I, I don't think I see nearly as much PCP as, for example, like the East Coast seems yeah. to see uh, anecdotally. And uh, for those of you who are not familiar with PCP, and PCP was kind of the before ketamine, essentially, PCP 
was used as an anesthetic and in both uh, humans in veterinary settings. I think it was originally a veterinary medication, but it's an NMDA receptor antagonist. So it's in that dissociative uh, category of anesthetics where... Hello again, friends. If you would like to learn more about the origin of PCP and its ketonamine analog successor, ketamine, check out episode 10 on ketamine-induced bladder damage. Carry on. What's interesting about those, uh, both therapeutically and as you use them recreationally, is you basically divorce yourself of your sensation of pain and your want to care about it. Because you can still feel pain. Despite the fact that you can feel pain, you don't care about it, which is like so fascinating that we figured out a way to take this thing that we use to move about and perceive and we just somehow like, I don't know, separated the two. Super fascinating. And also PCP itself, it is much more, I believe, lipophilic than ketamine. So it has a much more potent effect and also has some kind of sympathomimetic catecholamine sort of effects. And so what people describe, not having seen it, but a couple times myself, is people will have these like Herculean superhuman strengths. And because it's got that analgesic and dissociative property, they don't feel the pain, you know, that you're exerting your muscles, that you're punching through a freaking wall or jumping through glass. You do not care. And then also has some weird associated psychoses with it. And it's just, if you want to just F somebody up in a fight, like just do a bunch of PCP, right? What a brilliant answer. My my biggest concern is how are you going to remember to fight someone when you're... Fully dissociated. It's a cage match. Like, why don't you just, you got a cage, you can't escape. Where else are they going to go? That's true. Right? With your rock hands? That's true. I like that. Ultimate rock races. Yeah. PCB definitely has the connotation of uh, fighting, lifting cars. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. And I've, I've only seen it a couple times. There was a guy, this is the lore that lives, of course, from my residency, that there was somebody who did PCP. And then they, so he was, you know, he was restrained to his bed and he did what they call the Ninja Turtle, where he like flipped himself up while he had his, his two arms, you know, restrained still to the bed up by his hands, essentially. And then, and his legs too. But then he was like walking like a Ninja Turtle, like his bed was like <laughs> his Ninja Turtle shell on his back. And he was just slowly like stumbling through the ER. This is like the lore. I don't know if this is actually true, but that is uh, what you call a Ninja Turtle. That's that is a term I've never right. learned, but I am thrilled I learned it today. That is that a is, gift. That is a gift. That That's is, a gift for you. Well, I like the, that. Yeah, uh, right. Ninja turtling. Ninja turtling. Don't see that very much anymore. Huh? You no. Plus, you get an added layer of protection in your fist fight. That's right. Exactly behind Ninja you. Turtle. Yeah. The second question that I had come across, which just kind of made me think, is um, what drug can i do that will not make me give a f word oh which is great to this i believe the same answer what what you just chose me not care uh what what drug can i do that will not will that will make me not care well yeah you'd have to define the uh, neurobiological basis of of giving an f in the first right that's going to get pretty complex let's start there well now we got to get into uh motivational reward pathways talk about the the different dopamine circuits in the brain right well with okay this is actually something i did think about once so there's there's two motivational reward main reward pathways in your brain that make up the ventral tegmental system i think is what it's called you have the the uh 
the mesolimbic and the mesocortical. Okay. So the mesolimbic is the one that's like limbic is like lower brain. It's like, I like sugar. I'm a lizard. I want to eat that cake. When I see the cake, I might not mm-hmm. ever see a cake again. So you have your mesolimbic, which is like, I see it. I want it. And then you have your mesocortical, which is like, oh, big forebrain, big thoughts, want to be an astronaut. They're often at odds with each other. So it's like, hmm, mesocortical says I should be an astronaut. And to be an astronaut, I have to be, you know, in good physical condition. Mesolimbic sees a cake, says you might never see a cake again. You got to eat this. And then this is the the thing where you're like, hmm, I want it and I don't want it. And then <laughs> at the same time. And who time, do you listen to? Which one on your shoulder? That depends on all of the other factors that occurred. That This is what's interesting is your ability to deny the mesolimbic really depends on... <laughs> How much rest you've had, whether or not you've had to deny it prior in the day. All this right. Stuff. It's just parenting the rest of your brain. Yes. it's You know, it's just like trying to tell your toddler, no, you can't. No, right. No. It's just like parenting that little part of your brain. You, don't, you only get to do it so much. But these are all dopamine pathways. So like the desire. Right. So a anti-dopaminergic agent, I do think just shuts down like motivation. So. This is where we can see, and this is a guy, this is me just spitballing, so I don't have the pharmacology paper for this, but this is where like Haldol might actually just like make you not, if if giving an F is a thing you want, right? Haldol might turn that want off for that right. thing. That's kind of how I think about it. Just Buddhist that brain. Yeah. Be the rock. Buddhist it. Yeah. Be the rock. Be the rock. I am the rock. Absolutely. What was interesting about that question when I read it, like when you read the answers, it was every drug. It was just every drug. Yeah. It was listed. I think somebody was looking for like the number one answer, but it was just all of them. Yeah. It was opioids. It was stimulants. It was benzos. It was alcohol. It was cocaine. It was it was PCP. It was ketamine. It was everything. And it was so interesting to me that the answer is just yes, you know? Yeah. Like I think one of your previous, I think it was Howard Greller. It was like, yes, and Howard, like that's drugs. It was just like, yes, and drugs. <laughs> yeah. And it was so interesting because the fact that we have an entire, we have an entire enzymatic system that is designed to metabolize alcohol, ethanol, right? Mm-hmm. Which means that ever since we were like primordial beings, we have been drinking ethanol. Like ever since we figured out that we have brains, we have figured out how to F with that brain and that perception of your life and your time and your experience. So much so that our bodies have developed these systems to deal with common things like ethanol. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting how, you know, probably from a primordial, like single cellular, barely multicellular organism, we were dealing with outside things interfering with our systems right and and that has been a, probably a big problem for our cellular machinery for a long time i mean if you think about why we have uh efflux pumps that are co-localized with cytochrome enzymes is because if too many things get into this like really complex thing mm-hmm. that allows us to perceive a lot of things alter it. We label things drugs, but there's other things that alter it too. And- yeah. You know, and then of course, all the medications and the drugs that we take just take advantage of these endogenous things that we have that we were made. Mm-hmm. And our bodies are like, well, I've kind of seen something like this before. So I'm going to run it through this ADH pathway like you do for ethanol. And then, you yeah. know, now of course I've effed my kidneys. So that sucks. Or like I've taken this drug and our livers are like, okay, what shenanigans are you up to now? Usually it's just ethanol again, so or whatever. Let's run it through this CYP system that I have. And it was like, sucker, it was acetaminophen. Sucks to be you. Screw your liver, right? Like you, we needed a bouncer from the get-go. 
And we've just sure. sort of hijacked these mechanisms and machineries that we have that were developed, you know, long before woolly mammoths died. It, it just yeah. is like the whole basis of our entire profession broken down into just people wanting to change the way they perceive things. And like, cause you know, existence is pain. Yeah. Maybe that's the whole point. Maybe that's the whole point. There is no spoon. Yeah. <laughs> Listeners, we've, we've devolved. We've we're all decided now, that we're now in the matrix. Just functioning. Uh, yeah. We're, we're, we're just going to work on stripping away all desires here, guys. All right. That was a good spot. Desire for nothing except to listen to the next episode of this podcast. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Uh, well, I think that's a great place. And we're running up on the end of time. Not like the end of time, but the end of like this Like the restaurant episode. at the end of the universe. We have ordered our last drink, last <laughs> call. I want to thank Dr. Arns for joining us. Are there any any final words? As always, I say just don't do drugs. <laughs> oh, right. and if you it and everybody be good and if you can't be good, be safe. Ooh, I like that. Well, thank you for joining today. Great clinical insights. Thank you for breaking down DNP and taking us through the philosophy of how to win a fist fight. And it was a don't good. F with Dr. Feldman. Bring your Sugamida. And I have loved having you on the show today. I am gonna go find the best looking lava lamp to drink. And this has been an absolute pleasure. Bye. That is going to do it for this episode. Thank you so much to Dr. Ahrens for joining the show. I went back and listened to this episode and audibly cracked up multiple times. From uncouplers of oxidative phosphorylation to electron transport chains, cadmium, and lava lamps, we explored the scientific, the objective, the subjective and the philosophical of toxicology and had a lot of fun doing it. If you like what you've been listening to, follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And please give us a review. It helps us reach other listeners who are interested in learning about toxicology. You can follow the show on social media, on Twitter at Lab Poison, myself at EM Poison Farm D, on Instagram at Tox underscore talk, and Facebook, The Poison Lab. Don't forget to check out the website, www.thepoisonlab.com, where you can find all free episodes, free games, and medical resources, and a link to Tox Trinkets. So you can buy, as Dr. Ahrens would call it, merch. Oh my god, you have a sweatshirt. You have oh yeah, merch? This is, this is my recording sweatshirt. You have merch? I Well, only because I wanted people to have the opportunity to rep the show. I make no money on it. For cost only. Nice. But yes, I do have merch. I will say, I really like the sweatshirt. Anyways, you can always reach out to the show anytime you want at TalksTalk1 at gmail.com. There's nothing better than getting a message from a listener about how they learned something or they hated an episode or loved an episode. We love getting to engage with this awesome community. Thank you to everyone who participated and sent in their guesses and keep your ears peeled for the next mystery cases that will come out. Okay, I think that'll wrap it up for this episode. Thanks for listening today, and I hope you can tune in next time. Hey, Toxo, can you play us out? The information on this show is for educational purposes only and should not be interpreted as medical advice or treatment recommendations. Contact your doctor for health questions or call your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222. The opinions expressed on this show do not represent those of our employers. This show is poorly written and shoddily produced by Ryan Feldman. Don't forget to give it a share with your nerdy friends. Cheerio mates. See you next time.